A pipeline under construction is set to run through the traditional land of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Some, including elected band council members, support the coastal gasoline pipeline, while others, including hereditary chiefs, oppose it. And those opponents have blocked access to the land negotiated by the elected chiefs. At the heart of the disagreement is a convoluted governance structure that dates back more than a century. It's a land divided by pipeline and by history. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is why. Work now resuming on the natural gas pipeline, galvanizing protesters nationwide. The last holdout standing in the way of the energy giant behind it, having left by force and with division in their wake. It's really hard because um, there's division. There are people who are for the pipeline and there are people who are against the pipeline. It's the people like Candace George with jurisdiction over the swath of indigenous land in northern BC left living with the fallout of a widening wedge driven through at Soda Nation. When I see the, uh, the protesting elsewhere, I do understand a bit of it, but like I said, this is a Wet'suwet'en problem. The lucrative pipeline that has polarized this region also promises prosperity and economic opportunity to the communities it runs through in exchange for access to resources and unceded territory. I have a truck payment, I got a house payment, I got a, I got a boy that's, that's going to be with me for the rest of my life that I have to work. The multi-billion dollar deal, years in the making, recognized by provincial and federal governments and backed by the nation's elected leaders. We don't have very many projects up in northern BC to sustain our communities. But rejected by the vocal majority of its hereditary ones and their supporters. Yes, they need a paycheck, but I think there's better ways to get a paycheck. I think there's better ways to get a paycheck that will look after the environment, look after our water, our salmon, our culture. Now all sides are being called to the table, summoned to a rare meeting of all clans and chiefs. And they need to discuss and come to a consensus decision because that has never happened. While a resolution is unlikely, all sides say unity and respect is paramount, with friendships and families already fractured. As demonstrators far disconnected from the heart of the issue take sides, as a largely internal conflict that's as complex as it is impassioned plays out on the world stage. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Adam, these protests have really captured the attention of Canada. It got me wondering why the agreement TC Energy and the BC government says has already been negotiated is being opposed. And from that story by Sarah McDonald, it sounds like it's an internal matter with the Wet'suwet'en. Let's go to someone who has some experience with Indigenous law. David Kahn is an Indigenous rights constitutional lawyer, uh, but you may know him better as the leader of the Alberta Liberal Party. Welcome to the show, David. Hi, thanks for having me. David, for this conversation, we'll have you put your lawyer hat on. Uh, you can leave the provincial politics hat to the side for the time being. But we wanted to talk to you about these protests on the Wet'suwet'en First Nations surrounding the coastal gasoline pipeline. At the heart of it, from what I understand, it's perhaps an interpretation of which chiefs, hereditary versus elected, have the authority to sign agreements for this pipeline to go through the First Nation. Do I have that correct? Yeah, yeah, there's... Um you know, there's there's different governance structures, and that's what makes this complicated. Governance structures imposed by the federal government through the Indian Act, 
and uh, and uh, those that were traditional governance structures that uh, First Nations, uh, such as the Wet'suwet'en, have uh, used for generations and uh, hundreds of years or, or much longer. So it um, it just uh, so there is a dispute as to whether these um, uh, ban councils. I, I believe there's about four. Um, Indian Act bands that uh, make up the Wet'suwet'en Nation, and they each have a ban- an elected band council. And it's my understanding that these band councils ha- councils have uh, signed um, agreements with uh, with Coastal Gas Link in terms of uh, benefit agreements. Can you give us a bit of a history lesson as far as Canada's Indigenous peoples and their agreements with the Canadian government? Because you mentioned that there's these Indian Act band councils. Previous to Europeans coming to Canada and North America, there was that very traditional government structure. What changed when European settlers came and formed a government here? And what happened that they needed to have an elected band council? Yeah, so going back, you know, for time immemorial, the Wet'suwet'en Nation and other First Nations had their own traditional governance structures. Um, some of these were, uh, and so uh, when uh, colonial powers came uh, into Canada and settled across the country, uh, Britain uh, uh, Britain controlled uh, British Columbia as a colony, and uh, the governor of, uh, of the British Columbia colony and the Vancouver Island colony um, uh, the, he started to uh, Governor Douglas started to uh, create reserves for First Nations people. What the, but what the, the the federal crown and, and the British crown did is try to uh, uh, move uh, First Nations people into small postage stamp sized reserves around the province. And there was some treaty signed with with uh, First Nations, but uh, unlike east of the Rockies, where most of uh, most of Canada, east of the Rockies, right across to northern Ontario, there was the numbered treaties signed with First Nations. These are like Treaty Seven, Treaty Eight, Treaty Six here in Alberta. Treaty Eight uh, covers northeastern BC as well. Uh, they were signed with First Nations and their agreements to share the land and resources. Now, there's lots of disputes as to how, how much sharing was was meant by those treaties. But in the in British Columbia, west of the Rockies, there was really no treaty signed to share the land. So most of the land west of the Rockies in BC is unceded territory. Uh, there's been some agreements, modern agreements, signed with the Nishka uh, in, in northern BC and with the Suwassen First Nation uh, in lo- the Lower Mainland. But mostly, the land is unceded and is claimed by by First Nations as their traditional territories. So the and the colonial uh, governments uh, tried to to dismantle these traditional governance structures by pushing First Nations people onto these reserves and imposing a Indian Act bound council bound council um, government governance uh, on these uh, uh, on these reserves. So the, the, that's imposed by the federal government. And then there was federal policies to dismantle their or or uh, undermine their governance structures such as the ban on the potlatch uh, ceremonies which i think existed for about 100 years and potlatches are integral to uh, first nations in, in british columbia and in their governance structures so uh, there was a, a real uh, push to to marginalize uh, and and dismantle these traditional governance structures and impose uh, these the, the colonial indian act uh, elected band council structure <laughs> Let's take a moment to define the Indian Act. It's an early piece of Canadian legislation that basically defines how the federal government interacts with more than 600 First Nations bands and their members. It also defines who is and isn't a, quote, status Indian. To quote Thomas King's The Inconvenient Indian, the act itself does more than just define legal Indians. It has been the main mechanism for controlling the lives and destinies of legal Indians in Canada. And throughout the life of the act, amendments have been made to fine-tune this control. 
So we're talking about almost 150 years under the Indian Act structure, and in cases outside the Wet'suwet'en, a history of treaties where First Nations agreed to share the land with the Canadian government. What is some of the case law in place that's affecting the Wet'suwet'en? Well, it's actually quite, um, it's an issue that's really not very well uh, determined in the courts. Uh, what, uh, who, who holds the the, the uh, traditional uh, Aboriginal rights and title for uh, a group of people for a First Nation, um, whether it's uh, traditional governance uh, structures or Indian Act bound councils. Now, east of the Rockies, because there's much more land to uh, perhaps uh, you know distribute, um, Indian Act bound councils are largely overlap with uh, or or are, are the same, or have now become the the uh, governance structures for First Nations, but. But west of the Rockies, uh, as I said, there was a lot of balkanization of, of First Nations and, and a lot of dividing nations up onto into separate reserves, and so they really, really didn't accord with their, their traditional uh, uh, organizations. And there really hasn't been a lot of um, understanding uh, or development um, uh, on this issue. Now, uh, the, the uh, Delgamont case uh, brought by the Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary chiefs uh, back in the 80s that became a, a seminal case for uh, for uh, delineating uh, what to, uh, that Aboriginal title exists and and has not been um, not been extinguished by the Crown and and exists until there's uh, treaties signed. That uh, that was brought by by the uh, traditional uh, uh, hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en uh, Nation and and uh, they were recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada and lower courts as being the ones that could bring such a case. Now, in the last number of decades, uh, the federal government has encouraged proponents to to work with, uh, to approach and work with, and try to sign benefits agreements with uh, those uh, Indian Act bound councils that that govern the Indian Act bands in uh, in BC. But that becomes a problem, uh, as as is being demonstrated here, where those uh, there's a there's a, a difference between. The, the several different Indian Act band councils and the hereditary chiefs in terms of uh, policy. So that's really, so really this division has been stoked by the federal government uh, encouraging proponents to deal with Indian Act bands and not with uh, tr- the First Nations uh, traditional governance structures. So you've got these reserves that don't necessarily overlay with the traditional lands of the First Nations, and then you've got these band councils resulting from the Indian Act overlaying on top of the hereditary chief governance structures that were already in place. This is definitely a bit of a, a mess of a quagmire. Uh, yeah, I mean the the Wet'suwet'en have a very um, uh, they've had a very, have a quite a complex uh, uh, hereditary um, governance structure, and it's uh, based on clans and and uh, uh, houses and clans, and and it's quite complex. And yet that that nation was was divided up into and pushed onto four different reserves with four different band councils governing those reserves and so it's really uh just carved up and and uh, carved up the nation and those those imposed band councils really don't uh, don't represent the 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 uh, the nation as a whole and uh, uh, sort of uh, has have this has divided the community 
As we saw recently with the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, the Trudeau government has stood behind its commitment to consult Indigenous groups that are affected by projects like pipelines. How does that commitment of the Trudeau government and, say, the Impact Assessment Act further muddy the waters? Well, uh, the federal government has more of a more than a commitment. They have a constitutional duty to consult and accommodate First Nations with respect to uh, developments on their traditional territories or on the lands they, that they either... Uh, have Aboriginal title to or claim Aboriginal title to. The, the problem, again, is that most Aboriginal title claims have not been decided by either treaty negotiation or litigation in a, in a court order. Uh, the Silcotin uh, people were awarded a large, uh, very large uh, Aboriginal title over a vast area of BC through the courts, uh, but uh, uh, very little of that has been done. So there's so most of the the lands have asserted uh, uh, Aboriginal title to them, and the duty to consult is sort of a sliding scale depending on how serious the development is and how uh, and how strong the claim of uh, rights and title to that land is. Uh, when when there's uh, outstanding Aboriginal title claims that haven't been decided, uh, the duty to consult and if the, and if the development is quite you know quite um, significant, then the duty to consult scale uh, approaches consent because uh, Aboriginal title hasn't been decided and the effects on the land could be quite uh, quite severe with, uh, with a large, you know, a mine or a dam or something. So that's the so the the issue is is that um, duty to consult and accommodate becomes quite quite um, uh, a fulsome duty when there's uh, these outstanding claims and when there's large projects uh, in development. The other commitment that the Trudeau government has made though is to dismantle the Indian Act, which is very uh, uh, discriminatory. In fact, South Africa modeled their apartheid system largely on the Indian Act. So that's a real goal of uh, this federal government to dismantle that. Uh, that, that uh, discriminatory uh, act uh, and structure, but the, again, that will affect band councils and, and reserve governance, and we really need to move back to uh, First Nations ha- uh, uh, making decisions via their own traditional governance structures. You've spent a career specializing in Indigenous rights and land claims litigation. In your experience, what sort of relationship would these Indigenous groups like to have with provincial and federal governments? I think they want respect, they want a piece of the economic pie, they want um, control over their destinies and their futures, and they want control over their traditional territories, and they want um, agreements uh, to, to, be, uh, to, to be finalized in terms of their uh, Aboriginal rights and title, and, and recognition of, uh, of their uh, self-governing traditional structures, be they uh, elected councils as the Squamish nation has, has basically uh, uh, is now uh, uh, governed by a purely elected councils or, or have a hereditary structure in place but I think they just want to, want respect and want their their claims to be adjudicated and, and negotiated or, or finalized yeah, the federal government has for many many decades stalled and, and uh, used stalling tactics in the courts to really drag down this litigation and not allow it to pass and then to move forward and then negotiations have been extremely slow uh, uh, the BC treaty po- process has is been really uh, 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 very inefficient in, in moving forward any of these claims and, and coming to agreements so we've got a lot of work to do in terms of coming to agreements to share the land and resources with First Nations and to recognize their Aboriginal rights and title 
and you know, this the Suetan uh, dispute with Coastal Gas Link or the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion are examples of of uh, what's happening because we've neglected this issue for so long and let it fester, especially in BC, west of the Rockies. We shouldn't impose our, our views on, on, on First Nations. They, they are a, a, a group of people. Uh, First Nation, they have different views uh, uh, in terms of uh, short-term and long-term benefits of different projects and different views on, on uh, jobs. and. And and simply because a governance structure might be hereditary doesn't mean that it's similar to a monarchy or is passed down from generation to generation. There's a quite a complex uh, structure in place for for deciding who's hereditary chiefs in in the Wet'suwet'en nation. And you know I'd point out that we have um, a, a appointed officials, judges, senators, who have a role to play in our governance structure. Uh, in terms of deciding uh, long-term interests of, uh, of uh, uh, long, the long-term interests or future of our of our country, and they're appointed uh, to to depoliticize the situation and to allow for uh, longer-term decisions to be made outside of the political process. So I just like to point out that uh, that we also have uh, appointed, not elected, uh, decision makers in our uh, you know uh, Western British Westminster. Uh, uh, parliamentary model. Mm-hmm. So as alien as a, the idea of having both a hereditary and a, an elected chief can be, there are parallels in what what we would uh, consider, like you said, the the um, a parliamentary model versus uh, an indigenous model. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we think about our own Western uh, traditions, we we have the, we have those uh, appointed positions that aren't subject to election for the very reason that that uh, sometimes politics can be too short term. And so, I'd encourage uh, your listeners to to think about uh, the, the parallels we have and the and the shared goals and and aspirations we have uh, uh, as Canadians and uh, with uh, as shared with First Nations people. Hmm. Thanks so much for your time, Dave. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, you having me on. In January, solidarity protests sprouted up, impacting streets, intersections, and rail lines across the country. CN Rail and Via Rail ceased operations in parts of their rail network. Protesters in Halifax confronted Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland on her way to attend a meeting with the mayor. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also addressed the protests while in Senegal. We recognize uh, the important democratic right and we will always defend it uh, of peaceful protest. This is an important part of our democracy in Canada. But we're also a country of the rule of law. We need to make sure those laws are respected. That is why uh, I will be, I am uh, encouraging all parties uh, to dialogue to resolve this as quickly as possible. This Is Why is produced by me, Adam Toy, and Dave McIver. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email at thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a week. 